But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come here in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Turn with me, if you would, to page 665 of the Pew Bibles to this gospel of ours today, the gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 22. I just quoted verses 11 through 13, kind of in the middle of our passage for today. Again, it's page 665 of the Pew Bibles, St. Matthew, chapter 22. This parable or story of Jesus is about the coming of God's kingdom and the coming of Israel's Messiah. It's a story about what is happening at that very moment that Jesus is telling the story. The Messiah and the kingdom are here. This has been the message of Jesus for all of his ministry. When he begins it, he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, when, When John sends his disciples to say, hey, are you the Messiah? Jesus says, well, are the can the deaf hear, the lame walk, the, um, are the tongues loosened, are we having healing? And we see in another passage that Jesus quotes that chapter, I think it's out of Isaiah, which says the Messiah will do all these things. And he looks at John's disciples and says, is this happening? Well, what's the answer then? Yes, I'm the Messiah. Um, apparently... Uh, Having, um, we have a, a student from the South here, and we had an interesting discussion recently. Uh, and apparently, um, had the Gospels written in California speak, Jesus would have said, duh, yes, of course. Um, so I guess we're glad that uh, Californians didn't write the Gospels. The good news of the parable that was our gospel lesson today, is that though the king's people did not receive the invite appropriately, read with me beginning at verse 3, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they did, were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. So the people in the parable did not respect, nor did they honor their king and the king's son and his wedding. And so we look at Israel and we see the same thing happening there. And the one part that I'm really not going to touch on much is that uh, the king was a little bit upset and sent out his armies and destroyed the cities of these people. And we see um, the warning right there to Israel for rejecting their Messiah, for killing their Messiah. And we see that Israel is no more by 70 AD. It's destroyed. The temple is literally torn stone from stone apart. That's all I'll say about that. But there's more to this passage than I have time to touch on. So even though in the parable, the invited guest said, eh, I've got busier, I've got more important things to do. I'm busy. 
I'm going to go have a tequila or a martini and sit by the pool. I don't know. But they certainly did not show respect nor honor to their leader. Nonetheless, the king was determined to have people at his son's wedding. Thus, at verse 8 in the passage, he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Bishop Wright notes that God was sending out new messengers to the wrong parts of town even to tell everyone and anyone to come to the party. And they came in droves. We don't have to look far in Matthew's gospel to see who they were. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the riffraff, the nobodies, the blind and lame, the people who thought they'd been forgotten. They were thrilled that God's message was for them after all. And then we see the part I quoted at the beginning, the man who did not have on a wedding garment. What do we do with this bit of the parable? How do we interpret it? What does it mean for you and me? Those are good questions. And honestly, a lot of ink has been spilled on debating the meaning. At the very least, as another commentator notes, participation in the visible church, this morning, all of us here with each other, participation in the visible church is not all that is required for ultimate salvation, if you will. There is also a scrutiny to be undergone and an award to be made. The Greek word for the verb saw, theaomai, the Greek word means, well, and that's where the king says he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. It means not merely to see casually, casually like you might see a crowd, but to gaze upon with the intent of seeing the real nature and character of a person or an object. So what the king was doing was a little bit more intense than just scanning the room. And he saw this man without a, man without a wedding garment, and that, that, that idea is that he looked intently at that man to see the real character and nature of this man. So again, what does this mean for us? Well, we've been invited is not our baptism our wedding garment? That would be a typical answer that many of us might say. Well, no, it's not. Not exactly. I mean, it's the beginning. This guest in Jesus' story had not presented himself in attire befitting the solemnity, but rather in his everyday garb with no proper preparation had he dared to come to this great festival. We'll get back to that idea because I think that's really a popular idea in our culture. So how do we avoid this? 
There is something more needed than just baptism to be a faithful Christian. Yes, faith is required, but faithful living is also required. That same commentator states, the scrutiny, whether made in this life or in the life to come, shows how grace has been used. If we have put on Christ, if we have kept our soul pure and white, unsullied by sin, or washed clean by penitential tears and the blood of Christ. It is a scrutiny that says, yes, you're going to fall, you're going to trip, you're going to skin your knee, but have you cleaned yourself up? Have you put on Christ? Have you walked in Christ? Have you extended the grace of Christ to others? This is not what we want to hear in our current culture. Our current culture wants to say, hey, look, we can come to God however we are. And in some sense, this is true. But once we've come to God, God has some expectations of us. We have some obligations once we have bowed the knee and come as we are in a mess, and God has healed us and made us whole, there is now some obligations. And oh, we might have something called duties. Another horrid word in our culture. Everyone hates the word duty. I don't want to think about duty. We had one gentleman in our process of writing a catechism, we had one gentleman say, well, why would we use the word duty about loving my wife? My ultimate response after a long conversation is, There may come a day when your wife is going to be very glad that you have a duty. Because we don't always wake up with the right love and attitude in our hearts. And sometimes, particularly I believe wives have a hard time. They turn over in bed and go, what did I do? I married this person? Goalie, I'm just warning you. Uh, But I I think I should have told the gentleman, hey, look you better be very glad that your wife has a duty to love you. Because I'm sure there are many days she doesn't want to. So yes, even duty is one of those bad words, but it's a good word. It's a word we need to hear. Bishop Wright notes that we want to hear that everyone is all right exactly as they are. That God loves us as we are and doesn't want us to change. People often say this when they want to justify particular types of behavior, but the argument doesn't work. When the blind and lame came to Jesus, he didn't say, yeah, you're all right as you are. He healed them. They wouldn't have been satisfied with anything less. When the prostitutes and the extortioners came to Jesus, he didn't say, ah, you're fine, just continue, you're You're just fine as you are. His love reached them where they were, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants the best for the beloved. Their lives were transformed, healed, and changed. He continues a little later. The point of God's love is that he wants people to change. He hates what they're doing And the effect it has 
on them and everyone else. Ultimately, if he's a good God, he cannot allow that sort of behavior and that sort of person, if they don't change, to remain forever in the party he's throwing for his son. Obligation. Duty. Perfection, no. But we often use, I'm not perfect, no one's perfect, as an excuse to not make the effort. God wants us to learn and grow and become formed into the likeness of his son. And if we look at our epistle lesson, where we are called to be filled with the Spirit, we know that there is power given to us by God in his Holy Spirit, the third person of God himself, to actually affect that change, to actually grow more into the likeness of Jesus, to actually get rid of sin, to come to closer anyways to perfection. So our gospel lesson and the reminder from the epistle that we have the power has to stick with us. We have to make the effort. God wants us to become more like his son. Part of being grown up, growing, right? Bishop Wright says, is learning that actions have consequences, that moral choices matter, and that real human life isn't like a game of chess, where even if we do badly, the pieces get put back into the box at the end of the day, and we can start again tomorrow. The great, deep mystery of God's forgiveness isn't the same as saying that whatever we do isn't really important because it'll all work out somehow. That's not the mystery of God. We have an obligation to speak and to live the truth. We can't pretend that the real life, rubber meets the road, faithfulness, doesn't matter. It matters each and every day. Now, yes, at the end of the day, we can repent. We can wash ourselves with our tears. We can start again the next day living faithful lives. But a habit and a lifetime of thinking that's okay is a bad idea. If we want to have a wedding garment on ourselves at the end of it all, we'd better start practicing wearing it today. If we want our loved ones to be wearing it at the wedding, we must not play play games with what it means to wear it and how important it is. I'll let Wright have the last words. He says, The truth is that God's kingdom is a kingdom in which love and justice and truth, and mercy, and holiness reign unhindered. They are the clothes you need to wear for the wedding. And if you refuse to put them on, you are saying you don't want to stay at the party. That is the reality. If we don't have the courage to say so, we are deceiving ourselves and everyone who listens to us. Amen.